This episode is dedicated to the memory of Dave Harrison. And welcome to another episode of For You, The War Is Over, presented by me, Dave, the history nerd. And by me, Dave, the tech geek. And today we're going to be looking at the story of a gentleman named Brigadier James Hargist. A really fascinating guy. He's got a fantastic story. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but so far the highest ranking person we've ever looked at? I think I'm right in saying he was actually the most senior ranking escaper of the entire war. Wow, that's incredible. A record he actually shared with his co-escapee, yeah. because he escaped with a colleague called Brigadier dear Reginald Miles. However, I'll, I'll come back to Miles later on because he has a story in his own right. Okay. Um, so we will come back to him. But yes, absolutely. As I say, as far as I'm aware, he is the most senior escaper of the entire war. Wow. But he had an incredible backstory, but quite a, a normal start to life. He was a farmer from New Zealand, but by virtue of being a brigadier by the Second World War, he actually served in both wars. So he served in the First War, and actually, as, uh, as a New Zealander, he was, of course, in the Anzac forces, which in the those days will come as no surprise that he actually served at Gallipoli. Ah, yeah, of course. One of the major battles of the First World War, and certainly if you're a member of the Anzac Forces, probably the major battle, arguably in its history. Uh, Certainly it's a reference point still for Anzac Forces, and Anzac Day is still on uh, the landing of Gallipoli. However, so he did actually serve in Gallipoli and was actually injured at Gallipoli. Right. So he was brought back to recover and ended up fighting on the Western Front. And he fought at the Somme in September 1916. Okay. uh, Receiving a military cross for his actions there. That's quite impressive. It is. And in September 1918, he was actually appointed Lieutenant Colonel commanding the 2nd Battalion of the Otago Infantry Regiment. Wow. Yeah. And his leadership there saw him appointed to the DSO. He was mentioned in dispatches and was awarded the French Legion of Honour. This guy is is a real go-getter, isn't he? He really is. And his final piece of action was on the 4th of November 1918. So only a week before the end of the war when he took over a fortified uh, farmhouse. He ended up making that his headquarters for the final week of the war. Um, (laughs) Sorry, did you say it was a fortified farmhouse? I believe so, yeah. The Germans had fortified a farmhouse. So he kind of came around full circle if he started as a farmer. Yes, exactly, exactly. So maybe that's how he managed to uh, win that battle. He just understood how farmhouses were laid out. If that had been the end of his public service, it would have been a very impressive record to go on. However, he returned to New Zealand, returned to his farm, in fact. And, however, in 1931, he stood as an independent candidate to become MP for Invercargill in the New Zealand Parliament, which he won and was the MP for Invercargill until 1935. In 1935, he stood as a National Party MP, which is the New Zealand equivalent of the Conservative Party, um, the centre-right party of New Zealand, for the constituency, and apologies to our dedicated New Zealand (laughs) listeners for any mis pronunciation of locations in New Zealand but he stood for the Awarua constituency okay which is the most southerly constituency in the world right yes <laughs> okay or was it existed until 1996 Oh. Uh, but uh, was incorporated into what is now the Invercargill constituency. Oh, wow. So, from 1935 onwards, he was the MP for Awarua, and 
at the outbreak of the Second World War, he re-enlisted. This guy, before our official story even starts from the reports we've got, yep. has lived an incredible life. Absolutely. His record of public service is impressive. He was, bear in mind this is the early days of the National Party, Yeah. and I'll freely admit the history of the National Party of New Zealand is not my area of expertise, but I understand he <laughs> was a candidate to be the leader. Right. At one stage. Okay. The National Party is one of the major parties of New Zealand. Yeah. It, it, ultimately, he actually, because he'd re-enlisted, he, um, he didn't become leader. And he travelled over with the 2nd New Zealand Expeditionary Force and was due to travel to the UK, but was redirected to North Africa. <laughs> Okay. So in November 1941, so this is barely a, a fortnight before Pearl Harbor, the Americans are entering the war, the combined Commonwealth forces are fighting in North Africa because of course he was a New Zealander. Yeah. And Hargest is commanding the 5th Brigade of the New Zealand Division at Sidi Aziz on the 27th of November 1941. So the battle has been going on, it kicked off on the 18th of November. Yes. And But by this stage we're talking about sort of nine days later, so it's been going on quite a while. Yeah, yeah. They're facing down Rommel at this stage yeah. is one of the great generals of the Second World War on on any side you know yeah. th- this is not about politics of the war th- just Rommel is one of the great generals of the Second World War yeah and th- there's examples of that in his description coming up so Hargest is this is the 27th of November located at Sidi Aziz defending his location so he's been he's been given the task of holding the air landing ground at Sidi Aziz basically with the point to enable the Allied reconnaissance planes to operate across this uh, stretch yeah. North Africa during this battle. He has at his disposal his Brigade HQ, three troops of artillery, one platoon, one company of infantry and about 500 men in all with 11 guns. Which sounds alright actually. You know, It doesn't sound dreadful. Hmm. But then he says, at 7 o'clock in the morning the German forces approach from the south and attack me with a force of approximately 100 tanks and 48 guns. <laughs> uh, yeah, It was supporting infantry. In fact, the whole of General Rommel's armoured force. So they are vastly outnumbered here. Yeah. You know, they, they have 11 guns versus the Germans' 48 guns. I mean, they're, they're just... Yeah, plus everything else they have. <laughs> exactly, plus a full unit of infantry, as as he says, the entirety of General Rommel's armoured force. Yeah. In actual fact, you know what, fair play, they held out for a couple of hours. You know, he says that the battle lasted for two and a quarter hours till quarter past nine in the morning, by which time all of his guns had been destroyed. Yeah. Now, given that they were outnumbered by nearly five to one... It's, it's held out pretty well. Yeah, it's not bad. He's done all right. They were basically forced to surrender and it, he says you know I've been hurt by two shell fragments which though not serious at the time subsequently caused me great pain and illness now in his book Farewell Campo 12 he talks quite extensively about the pain he experienced in his hip Right. So it was actually in his hip this ah, Okay. I did wonder about something like that because he doesn't go into too much details here no, he, ab- he, about his injuries. He doesn't, but he does then go on to say that after they've just surrendered, General Rommel was present and expressed his admiration for the way the troops under my command had fought. His treatment of my force was correct and humane, he himself visiting the dressing station to see the condition of our wounded. That's that's what I was referring to yeah. earlier <laughs> when I said you see examples of how great of a general he is because he's won. He could have absolutely nothing to do with this from now on. Yeah. It sounds like he knows what it's like to be in a fight, be in a battle, and he cares about people. Yes, I'm sure he did. But he certainly behaved in a manner that doesn't credit in this report. Yeah. So from there, he was taken back to Bardia and interviewed by General Schmidt, who was the German commander of the fortress there. Now, it says here that General Schmidt offered Hargest his liberty on the condition that he gave his parole that he wouldn't escape. Fair play, you know, Hargest basically refused. Yeah. The 
opportunity to be given relative free reign in captivity yeah. on the promise that he would not escape is yeah. there from almost the first moment and he refuses. He is clearly thinking about escape from the earliest moment of his capture. Yeah. And actually fact he says something along those lines in his book whereby he says from the first moment, once he realised that he'd been captured, the urge to escape never left him for the next 16 months right which is strange because i guess he was more honorable than i potentially would be because i would have thought lying and saying yes i agree to get more freedoms is a greater way to make it easier for you to escape yes but then you only get one opportunity of that and if you break it the punishment was pretty hard right okay yeah that's fair <laughs> enough so, upon refusing, he was actually handed over to the Italians. Oh. Which might, on the surface, seem a bit of an odd decision, but we actually kind of touched upon this, and uh, David Gus in the previous yeah. episode, in episode 11 of series one, goes into some detail on this, which is that the North African campaign was actually an Italian campaign, but the Germans sent over troops to support them in it. Yeah. So, technically, they were the senior service on the Axis side. Right. And so, prisoners of war that were captured in North North Africa were quite often handed over to the Italians. I see. Yeah. And held by the Italians, which is precisely what happens here. Yeah. So having been handed over to the Italians, he was taken on a bit of a circuitous route back to Italy, taken first to Benghazi by submarine. I saw that and I was like, how peculiar? Why a submarine? Fantastic detail. Yeah. D- does it matter? Um, <laughs> I suppose, again, you know, going back to a previous episode, we have discussed the dangers of crossing the Mediterranean yeah. during this time, during the Second World War, when it was a hotly contested region ships were being attacked and bombed and sunk left right and centre almost so it was an extremely dangerous crossing at this time and so perhaps they chose a submarine because harder to find maybe yeah (laughs) just get them across easier yeah Uh, it doesn't go into detail as to why but from Benghazi they were taken across in a torpedo boat to Messina and then from there to Salmara and after a little while they were taken north to Campo 12 which is I think I'm right saying it's near Florence. Right, okay. So ultimately, you know, he arrived there on the 13th of March 1942 and he was there until the end of March 1943. So a little over a year he was there for. So having arrived in Campo 12, the report quite openly states, for a period extending over 12 months, a party of officers made preparations for escape. The party comprised of Lieutenant General O'Connor, Major General Carton de Viert, Air Marshal Boyd, Brigadier Coombe, Brigadier Miles, and myself. That's some high-ranking that officers. That's some very high-ranking <laughs> officers. I mean, that's what... Five generals of various ranks and an air marshal. Yeah. And I want to very quickly pick out one of them, which is Carton de Viart, whose life story is quite impressive. Okay. So... Hargis himself describes De Viert as one of the most gallant men I've ever met and one of the best comrades. His life story would read like a drama were it ever published, including as it would soldiering for Britain in South Africa before he was even a naturalised Briton. Service in the Great War where he lost an arm and an eye and won the Victoria Cross. Service in Poland in the post-war troubles there, followed by 20 years as head of the British military mission in Poland, where it is said he was offered the crown. When the Second World War began, he was there still, fought with the Poles against the Germans. Then he was sent to Narvik as the leader of the British force Narviks in Norway, right? Uh, which was so outnumbered that it had to withdraw immediately. Then to the Middle East, where he was captured. And he actually says he was caught by bad luck when, on a flight from the UK to the Middle East, the plane in which he was passenger came down in the sea near Derna, and he was compelled to swim ashore where he fell into the hands of Italians. I read earlier, he lost his arm. I was going to say, <laughs> a, a swimming ashore with one arm? In actual fact, his life story was published. Wow, that's um, incredible. 
Yeah. So De Vere is, in his own right, a fascinating guy. <laughs> Having established the close-knit group of colleagues who trusted each other were working on Escape together. Yeah. You know, they spent several months preparing maps, collecting provisions, making and dying clothes, careful reconnaissance of the prison camp, trying to find the best method of escape. Mm-hmm. I just think it's interesting that, regardless of the rank, the level of detail and depth of preparation is still important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, in some ways, escape respects no rank. Yeah. And they're still putting in that work, that attention to detail, even as some of the most senior members of the Allied forces. It's it's kind of interesting to see, to read it, because you would have thought in a world where they're outside of the camps and they needed all this done, it would be an order for someone else to do it. Yeah, quite possibly, yeah. But to see them all being like, nope, we still have to do it, let's just crack on. Yeah, and of course they've they've worked their way up through the ranks. Yeah, of course. But they're still just doing it for themselves. Yeah. And so ultimately they, they take the decision in August 1942 to tunnel out of the camp from the chapel in the camp which you know when they describe it you don't you don't kind of think it's that long you know it says it's 10 feet deep and then tunneling for about 30 feet under the castle walls under the driveway and then the outer battlements to come to the surface immediately outside the shelter of the outer wall so you're thinking 30 feet long that's not that long when you consider that say the tunnels in the great escape were over 300 feet yeah wooden horse was over 100 feet yeah so we're talking about 30 feet here but then they describe what they had to use, the tools yeah. they had to use, and it suddenly makes sense that it took them nearly six months to do this. Yeah. Because the tools they had were a kitchen knife, half-inch iron bar sharpened in the kitchen fire, which they used as levers, some gardening buckets, and rope for hauling the buckets to the surface. Not exactly... Yeah, um, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, and, and when you're digging through rock and stone with a kitchen knife, kind of does actually make sense that it took them over six months yeah. to dig 30 feet. So, onto the escape itself. On the evening of the 30th of March, they decide to make the actual escape. Yeah. Uh, so, they've got their tunnel dug. And another detail I found very interesting was again around the timing we've discussed before about the timing of the exit and the importance that can make to the success or otherwise of the escape and he says in the actual escape we chose a very wet night when the sentries would be in their boxes yeah so they're purposefully choosing a a night in which the weather would suit their circumstances yeah to reduce the number of guards and sentries that would be on the beat or paying attention or anything other than utterly miserable yeah and therefore less likely to be alert away are paying attention to the prospect of anyone escaping. Yeah. And so the purpose of the timing at the point of breakout is often related to their capability of getting away. Yeah. I mean, it's like by choosing the, the, the miserable rainy night, in some ways they've made physically moving more difficult for themselves, but they've got so many more benefits because of the fact that, like you say, the guards just probably want to sit inside, stay warm. Yeah. And those that are out would rather stay in the boxes, the yeah. sentry boxes. Exactly. And equally, you know, there was a regular and inspection there's kind of at 11 30 at night and they'd built these dummies to go into their bed so that <laughs> right. they could pass the inspection yeah. it would just be a lamp yeah, shone just... around and interestingly in the book he adds a detail about how for a couple of weeks prior to the planned escape whenever the guard came in to do the late night in- inspection with the torch they basically would wake up and shout at him kind of having to go at him for waking them up and right. essentially they were training him to so, do the inspection from the door so they right. weren't so the guard wasn't looking too closely thus they could then put a dummy in their beds to avoid close inspection oh, that's clever I thought you were going to say something slightly different then but in a similar I thought you were going to say they started putting the dummies in place every so often to <laughs> allow that sort of shape to be 
observed, but that's that's far that's far more clever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as I said, they broke out on the night of the thirtieth of March, nineteen forty-three, at nine thirty at night, right. which is actually quite important. Generals O'Connor and De Viert elected to walk to the frontier and left immediately, but Hargest and Miles instead walked to uh, Florence and took a train for Milan via Bologna. Mm-hmm. So Bologna is almost due north of Florence. Yeah, as just over a hundred kilometers away. Okay, and then Milan is another two hundred and sixteen kilometers, sort of northwest of Bologna. Yeah. So they've taken the trains Florence to Bologna and then Bologna onto Milan. Yes. And so they, they you know, they actually re- reach Milan at eight thirty the following morning, so less than twelve hours after the break. And this is despite having to wait several hours in Bologna. Pretty again. I, I again, it shows the importance of getting away quickly yeah. and the role that trains or some other form of fast transport can play Absolutely. in the success of an escape. We're talking about over three hundred and twenty kilometers away. Yeah. Within twelve hours. That's a, that's a that's a fast travel so they're th- over 300 kilometers away at the point when the first inspection and count at the camp roughly would have been taking place yeah. so having reached milan they then walk to the stazione di nord how's my italian which is another train station presumably in the north of milan yeah which would make sense and there they effectively separated from air marshal boyd and brigadier coom where although they were also heading to the same train station yeah they separated at this point so that they were basically traveling so the sets of two Rather than right, a collection okay. of four. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense compared to what we've seen other people do in the past. Yeah, so by this stage, Hargest is just travelling with Brigadier Reginald Miles. So having reached the Stazione di Nord, they took a train at 10.30 for Como, of Lake Como fame, okay. reaching there by noon. And from there, they basically, you know, he quite openly just says, walk towards Chiasso, and as soon as we could, we left the roads and took to the mountains, which had sufficient tree cover to give us a little shelter from view. So Como's only about 10 kilometres away from Switzerland. Right. So yeah. Very close. <laughs> very close. Well within walking distance. Yeah. And basically, you know, they, they reached the frontier, wait until it was a bit darker and after watching the patrol in the darkness uh, waiting until the patrol had kind of departed they cut a hole in the frontier fence with wire cutters and entered Switzerland at 10.30 that night so 25 hours after they left the camp they are in, in Switzerland. Switzerland that's impressive which is incredible as much as I was saying it shows the importance of getting away Yeah, it wasn't just the getaway it's not like they were waiting another five days they just went straight for the jugular yeah, <laughs> they, you know, they, went, they went to Milan from there, they took a local train to Como, and from there, they walked the last 10 kilometers to the Swiss frontier and crossed over within 25 hours. I, I also like the way they phrased when they were when they were following the patrol. Oh, we encountered the frontier fences after stalking a patrol in. I, I, I like the fact that they were just like spotted someone there. Quick, they know where they're going. Let's follow them because that will lead us to the border. <laughs> I'd assume that when they said stalking, they were referring to it in the sense that you'd stalk a deer. Oh, right. I, I assume like they'd found them and just were and following, following them, them yeah. to, the, to the borders. <laughs> it's a bit creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but a great way to find out where the border is. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, either could be right, yeah. What's interesting, actually, though, is in a number of reports and books and what have you, I've read, they, you know, they always talk about how they were arrested by the Swiss police mm-hmm. or taken to the Swiss police or the army or what have you upon entering Switzerland. I always kind of wondered why that was because you think you're no longer in occupied Europe, you're in neutral you Switzerland. Just be? What, why are they arresting them? And, yeah. and in actual fact, Har just kind of makes the point, which is actually you've entered the country without any authority or any papers. Yeah, it's true. It'd be like... It, 
it'd be like turning up without a passport nowadays. Yeah. They're not going to let you in. No. In fact, there's a very good chance you're going to get arrested here. And so actually he talks about how he was kept in custody for a couple of days. But, you know, standard standard procedure was that they knew you were an escaper. Yeah. They alerted the British legation. British legation would then confirm your identity, verify your story, perhaps, whereby you've said, I'm Brigadier James Hargis yeah. uh, of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. I was held in Campbell 12. All of these details would be known to the British authorities yeah. in Switzerland and therefore they'd be able to verify you and then you would be released into their care. And that's precisely what happened. And Adjifati says, you know, the attitude of the Swiss people is most cordial towards the Allies and they did everything possible to welcome us. I would say that they're at least 75-80% to 80% strongly pro-British and they made no secret of their belief in our cause. I believe that was the case even in the darkest days of 1940 and the feeling is strongest in the German speaking part of the country. It's strongest in the German speaking yes. part of the country. Well, Which I thought was quite an in- interesting description and interpretation in what is a famously neutral country. Yeah. Now, they were still neutral. Yeah. But I, thought, I just thought it was quite interesting the way he described it as them being very pro-British at this yeah. stage. I thought that was quite interesting. However, I said that I was going to come back to his time as an MP. Yes. So while he was in Switzerland, in September 1943, a general election took place in New Zealand. Okay. In which Hargist was re-elected unopposed for the for the Awarua constituency. What I know, he was he was utterly unopposed. He uh, stood again while he was in Switzerland. At the point of voting, presumably they didn't know he was in Switzerland. Did they just, or, or did they? Like as far as I, they, th- can... I, th- I think actually they probably did because it took place in September 1943. But he reached Switzerland in April. Right, so by okay. that point, he'd been there four or five months. So it's not like they just blindly went just voted him because they liked him, even though he was in a prisoner war camp or something like no, that. No, not at all. No, he was, as, as I say, you know, it may be that they decided that um, the parliament, if MPs wanted to restand from the parliament that were serving, yeah, because he was in the services, it may be that they decided to not oppose him because he was still in, on active service. In the UK, they didn't hold any elections during the war at all. Right. Uh, so the parliament actually lasted from 1935 to 1945 in the UK. Wow. Which is extremely long by our standards, but as I say, they did actually hold an election in 1943 in New Zealand and he was re-elected unopposed that's that's amazing (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) however his story does not end there so I said I was going to come back to Brigadier Reginald Miles yes and in actual fact it's actually quite a sad story Um, Yeah, so in the previous episode we talked about Geoffrey Morphew Yes we did Who at the time I said was one of the few to have escaped prior to the Italian armistice in Uh September 1943 He was actually one of three, the other two being Hargest and Miles Right However, when I was looking into the records I could find no record of Miles being a successful escaper I really wondered why this was And so I looked into it and in actual fact Miles was sent on ahead uh, to Gibraltar along the escape lines that we've discussed before. Yeah. And uh, he was sent on ahead of Hargest, uh, which is not uncommon to break up the combinations that reached a neutral country. It wasn't uncommon to send them onwards, depending upon availability, requirements, whatever. As I say, Miles was sent on ahead. He reached a place called Fugueras, which is in Spain. Okay. And again, it wasn't uncommon for escapees who had reached Spain to be held um, if they were captured by the Spanish authorities. Spain was neutral, but they were not wholly dissimilar to Switzerland. Would um, just arrest them, hold 
hold on to them, alert the British legation as to their presence in a neutral country. However, it turns out that Miles actually was suffering quite seriously from depression, oh. and while held in Fogueras, actually killed himself. Oh no. Yeah, so as I said, it's actually quite a sad story, which is why there's actually no record of him actually at, making it back. Actually succeeding, even though he was one of the few to actually succeed in getting out of Italy as a prisoner of war uh, prior to the armistice. So the record, as it currently stands, as far as I'm aware, is, or as, at least as far as my research can tell me, is that it was just Hargis the Morphew who succeeded prior to the armistice because. Sadly, Miles doesn't count. What a shame for it to end that way when he's come that far through everything else. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because, again, in the book, he doesn't go into a lot of detail. He does acknowledge that Miles died, but he doesn't acknowledge that it was suicide. Right. And the book was released in 1945, so it's unclear as to whether it was for security reasons Mm. or if it was to protect his family or if, uh, let's be honest here, possibly a stigma that was still attached in those days. So that's unclear, but he does, he kind of skirts around it. He does acknowledge that Miles dies, but he does skirt around what actually happened. He just says that he died in Spain. Yeah, it's quite, quite a sad story around... Miles and Hargis was actually still in Switzerland when he found out about it but not too long after that he was actually sent along the same route um, along the same escape line and he did make it to Barcelona and put in touch with the British authorities and sent to Gibraltar a route we're now familiar with yes we are um, and returned to the UK on the 29th of November 1943 so we've now got Hargis back in the UK six seven months prior to D-Day as we now know it he also had quite a interesting post escape career too Okay. So, at the point when he returned in November 1943, the second New Zealand division was fighting in Italy. Right. And he did actually try and seek out a role for that and return to action, but he was actually... Uh, no. Of course he, he did. Of course he did, yeah. <laughs> However, he was actually appointed the New Zealand Observer to D-Day and landed right. in Normandy on the 6th of June, which is D-Day. Yeah. So he was in, if not the very first wave, the early attacks on Normandy beaches in D-Day and would have landed almost certainly on gold. Gold or sword beaches. Wow. And he was actually injured in Normandy. However, with the Allied presence, on the continent, thought was increasingly being given to the liberation of camps mm-hmm. at this time. Because okay. the last thing they wanted was them wandering around an active front. Yeah, of course. So they were really anticipating the concept of liberation yeah. of and organising them once they had been liberated. You know, it's all very well kind of liberating the camp, but you've then got thousands of prisoners of war. Yeah. <laughs> just um, not knowing quite what to do and just going... Precisely, yeah. yeah. And so Hargis was actually appointed the commander of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force Reception Group, which was established with this purpose. However, unfortunately, he was actually killed by shellfire oh, on no. the 12th of August in 1944 in, during the Battle of Normandy. So although he was appointed quite early on, having been a prisoner of war, yeah. he would have brought a lot of expertise. He was actually killed in action on, as I say, in August 1944 in Normandy. And so it's quite a sad ending to his story. He fought in both wars. He was appointed to Distinguished Service Order. He, he actually... <laughs> Uh, he wasn't just a, uh, a DSO, but he was a DSO with two bars, um, which means he was awarded it three times. Um, Gosh, wow. the, fir- <laughs> the first time was in the First World War. Yeah. Uh, the first bar was in the Battle of Crete, and the second bar was actually for this escape. Wow. So his service record is incredible. Yeah. 
And what he managed to squeeze into his life is hugely impressive. So impressive that they actually named a school after him. Oh. In Invercargill, which I assume was in his old constituency. Yeah. Which is still going as far as I can tell. So if anyone at the James Hargest High School wants to get in touch, please feel free to do so. That would be amazing. That would be fantastic. And his book was published posthumously in 1945, as I said earlier, and is dedicated to his son, Jeffrey, who actually died in fighting in Italy at the Battle of Monte Cassino. Wow. Which again is one of the major battles of the Second World War and certainly in the Italian campaign. There's some tragedy in his life, there's no no denying that, but his record of service is well worthy of yeah. recognition and respect, I and, think. And the fact that it carries on to his son as well, that's one that's one committed family to, yeah. to helping out others and to the armed forces. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad we looked at Hargest. Yeah, I am as well. What yeah. an incredible story. An incredible story and an, an incredible man. Okay, well thank you everybody for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please consider subscribing to the podcast. We can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. If you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at fytwiopod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.